0: Tell you what we're going to do this morning is uh, we're going to talk a little bit about, in the Gospel of Mark, as we started last week, uh, about a very important occasion in the life of Jesus, which was called the baptism of Jesus. It was when Jesus goes to his cousin John, who is the baptizer, and he gets baptized, and it's a very significant point in Jesus' life. It's actually one of the very few um, scenarios in Jesus' life that actually gets recorded by all four gospel accounts. Uh, Mark has his own little spin on it. Mark doesn't spare any time. He immediately jumps into the life of Jesus, and then immediately jumps to this very first event of Jesus' life that we dip- typically identify as Jesus's baptism. So what I want to do right now is I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read the passage, and then we're going to get to work on this. So uh, let's jump in. And let's do that. God, we... Uh, Come to you right now, we just ask for your help, we ask for your guidance, we ask for your wisdom, and we need it, we're desperate for it, because God apart from it, uh, all we have is a Bible study, we have a lecture uh, that's devoid of any power, any substance, and any true help. And God, what we want is, we want to read your word, and to be not only challenged, but we also want to be helped. We want the power of God to open our eyes to see your strength and your might. And God, even more importantly, your love. That you love us, that you care for us, and that you desire to help us and change us, and that you've done everything within your power to do so. So God, even right now, we give you this time and ask that you would work in our midst and be the one that changes us and transforms us into the image of your son, Jesus. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen. I'm gonna pick up this morning at about verse nine. I'm gonna read just a handful of verses, and then we'll jump in and get to work. It says this. In those days... Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So Jesus comes from this region of Nazareth, which is sort of a suburb outside of the region of Galilee or within the region of Galilee. He comes out to John. We we're already told that John was out in the wilderness, which was not really our idea oftentimes of what we would think of a wilderness, but more like a desert. Kind of like that place in between Passover Robles and fresno or bakersfield it's just wilderness there's nothing out there it's dead and there's a lot of tumbleweed and that's where jesus went in verse 10 it says and when he came up out of the water uh, he went down to john to be baptized when he came up out of the water immediately he saw the heavens open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and the voice came from heaven saying you are my beloved son with you i am well pleased so with that one of the things that we're going to notice throughout the Gospel of Mark, and really even on a bigger, broader sense throughout the entire Bible, is that the Bible is story. It's narrative. It's true story, but it's true story that... Uh, unfolds for us God's work within this world. And one of the problems that oftentimes we think, one of the challenges that we oftentimes face when we read our Bibles is oftentimes we think that the weight of interpretation lie with us to somehow make sense of this. And what I mean by that is sometimes Christians get together and they're like, we've got to figure out how to translate this, or I should say how to interpret this, how to make sense of this. But what you need to understand is that not only is the Bible a storyline, not only is it an ongoing narrative revealing to us what God's like but it's actually also an interpretation upon itself. In other words, the Bible does not keep us in the dark and just say, read the story and make sense of it. It doesn't do that to us. It actually tells us a story, but then it tells us how to make sense of it. I'll give you one of those perfect examples of this is in probably an important verse that most of us are familiar with, which is like Romans chapter five verse eight. It says this, God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, So the historical fact is that Jesus died, died. And Jesus died uh, while people were still sinners. So the historical fact is this, you're a sinner, we're all sinners, and while we are sinners, Jesus actually died on the cross. It's all historical fact. So you can't challenge that, because you are a sinner, I'm a sinner, it's fact. Jesus died, it's a historical fact. But what sense does that make? What does that mean? How how do we, how do we, uh, what, How do we interpret that? What are we supposed to make of that? And actually the writer Paul tells us what to make of that. Because here's what he says. That this was actually God demonstrating love. So that's the interpretation right there. Historical fact. Jesus died. You're a sinner. And the interpretation of that is this is a demonstration of God's incredible love and affection. Because he died. He sent his son to die for you while you are still a sinner. So the Gospel Mark actually operates in much that same fashion that it tells us story, it tells us narrative, it gives us snapshots in the life of Jesus, but then it also uh, pauses and it opens for us up these new vistas or these new horizons that allows us to see exactly why these particular passages are here. And this is what we see, especially with the life of Jesus, when he goes down into the water to be baptized by John the, or John, uh, the Baptizer. Why this took place, why this happened. And this is what we're going to begin to see here right now. So what I want to do is, as we take a look at this, is that, One of the things that we looked at last week is that Mark actually tells us that this Jesus who comes on the scene, he's not just a prophet, he's not less than a prophet, but he's far more than a prophet. He's not just some great religious leader, he's not less than that, but he's far more than that. Because in reality, this Jesus who comes on the scene is actually uh, the king, the ruling king, the reigning king, and that he's come, and this is good news, and he's come not coming to bring judgment upon uh, treasonous rebels like you and I, he's actually come to bear their judgment. That's what he's come to do. And so the proclamation or the announcement that Mark wants us to be brought into the loop regarding is that this king has come. But now Mark is going to continue to tell us the story of what Jesus came and did by giving us these little snapshots. And the very first snapshot Mark gives us about the life of Jesus is that he goes to his cousin John the baptizer gets baptized, as he comes out of the water, there's a voice that comes down from heaven and speaks, proclaiming something over this Jesus. And The very first thing that I think Mark wants us to know that he's telling us, here's why this event is significant. So in other words, historical fact, Jesus was baptized, historical fact, spirit came down like a dove. But what's the interpretation of that all? Why? Why did that happen? What was the significance behind that? Mark is going to tell us. The first thing that we notice, I think very clearly, is that redemption, in other words, this is the work that Jesus is doing. He's redeeming uh, people. He's on a mission to redeem and restore uh, people that have been in rebellion against God. That this mission that Jesus is on of redemption is actually not just the work of one man, i.e. Jesus, it's actually the work of the triune God. It's really important. That's what Mark wants us to clearly see. In other words, what we mean by this is that God is being revealed to us via Mark as a Trinitarian being. Here's what I mean. Take a look at the, just a snapshot here. First of all, we see Jesus, the man. Jesus was baptized. Secondly, we see that when Jesus was baptized, after he's baptized, the Spirit of God descended upon him but then we're also told thirdly that a voice came from heaven and that voice was of the father so what we see here are three elements at work beginning or initiating this ministry of Jesus which is going to go on to bring about our redemption and what we see here very clearly is that God is revealed in father or son and holy spirit the trinity or the trinitarian nature of God is at work in this process or this actual act of redemption all right so what i want to do very quickly is i want to try to emphasize why this is so significant and point out to take a look at the next slide basically it boils down to this is that the bible as we read it very clearly teaches us that god is trinitarian in nature some of you might think well what does that matter can i just simply love god well, yes, you can love God as God works in your life, but the reality is, is that the fact that God is Trinitarian is what allows God to be loving. The fact that God is a Trinitarian God is, what, is what, the reason why God is a loving God. So in other words, we enjoy the benefits of love because of the very nature of who God is as being a Trinitarian God. Here's what I mean, and here's what I don't mean. What I mean, first of all, in Trinitary, Trinity, Trinity is that God is one God made up in three uh, distinct persons. That he's not three gods, but he's one God. So we actually are monotheists. One of the arguments that oftentimes people will make against evangelical Christianity or even just any form of Christianity is that we are actually, uh, we worship multiple gods. We worship three gods, and this is just simply not true. We don't worship three gods. We worship one God revealed in three ways. Some people would object saying that I don't like the word Trinity. In fact, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. And usually when people argue or want to try to push that point with me, I just I, I, I simply say, well, let's, let's get rid of the word Trinity. That's fine. We don't need to use the word Trinity because you're correct. It's not in the Bible. That word Trinity is not in the Bible. But the concept is. The idea is that Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is attributed with the characteristic of being a deity, being deity, being God. That this is, he's not just simply a, an act, or he's not just simply a force, but that he is actually, in effect, God. And that Jesus is not just simply a man doing God-like things, living God-like ways, but that he actually is God in the flesh doing these things as God. It's very important for us to understand this. So this is what the Bible teaches us about God, that he's Trinitarian in nature, the second thing that we see of what he's not is that what we're not saying is that he's not, we're not we don't believe in a tritheistic God, meaning um, three gods. We, we, we don't see the scriptures pushing forth tritheism. The third thing that we see is we're not, we don't see God as what we would typically call modalistic or modalism. What that basically means is it comes from an ancient heresy that was originally called Sabellianism, which was formed by a guy who was a monk um, that started this Controversy and basically trying to identify or keep the unity of God, the oneness of God, he basically said that there is only one God, but this one God variously takes on three types of or three modes. So sometimes you see this one God acting in the mode of Father, sometimes you see this one God acting in the mode of Son, sometimes you see this one God acting in the mode of the Holy Spirit, but this one God acting in three t- particular modes. And sort of the distant cousin of this today is what would be commonly known as Jehovah's Witness. It's the idea that there's just one God, but sometimes God will work through various agents. Jesus, he worked through Jesus. Jesus wasn't really God. He was just an agent through which God worked through. So, yeah, you might say that a lot of things that Jesus did were like God, but it wasn't really God. Jesus was not really God. And that the Holy Spirit was not really God, the Holy Spirit is a force by which God uses. Like an instrument, God picks up and uses it and puts it back down again. That's, uh, in a classic sense, or in a distant sense, modalism. So we don't believe in modalism. We don't believe in tritheism. We believe that the Bible teaches um, a Trinitarian perspective of God. Now, this is very important. We'll come back to why in just a second here, and hopefully it'll make a little bit of sense to you. One of the things that Mark, I think, wants us to identify with, with regard to why this is important and why he's trying to root this baptism of Jesus in a Trinitarian God is because it's important to the whole of redemption. I'll tell you why in a second. But first of all, Mark actually does this by alluding to at least four particular passages in the Old Testament. Now, you might think, we just read two verses. How do you get four verses out of that? Mark's skilled. He's very good at what he does. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's leading him and guiding him, but there's at least four allusions to Old Testament passages. Now, for us, most of the time, we have a hard time even memorizing one verse, right? We're like... John 3.16, you know, for God so loved, what was that again? The, you know, we have a hard time even remembering some of these things. But it's like we don't have any problem, you know, remembering a Jim Gaffigan joke or anything. like But remembering the Bible, it's very hard. But the point of the matter is, back in the day, uh, when during the first century, these people memorized much of the scripture. So when they're reading these particular passages that Mark is revealing to them through the life of Jesus, what they would begin to realize is that some of the things that Mark's talking about are actually Old Testament allusions pointing to this event that's taking place here for us. I'll give you an example. There's at least four verses. The first set of three verses, I think what Mark's trying to do is he's trying to point to the fact that this tri-theistic God is actually at work and as a result of A biblical context. I'll give you an example. The first way in which Mark identifies this, when he talks about um, God speaking from heaven, the voice comes and says, this is my beloved son. So that phrase, this is my son, you are my son, is actually a reference to Psalm 2, verse 7. Here's what it says. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So this Old Testament passage, which was typically or commonly referred to as a messianic passage, that this is a reference to God speaking to his son. Now again, when they read the Psalms, they had no idea who this is referring to. They just knew that God's talking about a son. Who is that? There's all sorts of speculation about that. But the point of the matter is, Mark uses this passage. God speaks this passage coming from heaven to kind of direct them to think about this passage from Psalms. So the second reference talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus. Jesus goes into the water, gets baptized, comes out of the water, and a dove descends upon Jesus, and we're told by Mark, this is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit actually descending upon Jesus. Now, again, let me take a moment to say, some people, there are some heresies that would basically say that Jesus, at the point of the baptism, received the Holy Spirit. In other words, up until this point, Jesus was a good guy, did a lot of great things, and yet he was not fully God. But because he was obedient to God at this point of uh, the baptism, God liked him and baptized him with the Holy Spirit. That's an ancient heresy that's called adoptionism. It's not true. That in reality, I believe what's going on here is that Jesus always had the Holy Spirit in him. But what we're seeing is from the baptism, the fact that he has the Holy Spirit. Not that he was just simply receiving it at that point for the very first time in his life, but that he always had the Holy Spirit in him. And now we're beginning to realize that God's spirit, God's presence actually resides upon this very important person that we would call Jesus, that Mark wants our attention to be drawn to. But this too also is an Old Testament allusion. Here's what Isaiah chapter 42 says when God speaks to the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen. And here's what God says about his servant the chosen one whom he upholds, God says, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice uh, to all the nations. So God says of this person, the servant, whoever he is, and again, ancient Jews had no idea. This is a reference pointing to Jesus. But Mark is very clearly saying, we know who this person is from Isaiah because we've seen him. We had fish dinner with him. We know who he is. We saw him do miracles. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. But this is the one whom God poured out his spirit upon in reference to Isaiah chapter 42. And so ancient rabbis, especially in the first century, oftentimes the way that they would teach God's word, um, they had one sacred book. They would call it the Tanakh, the Tanakh. And it was basically one book in three parts. The Tanakh actually is, is, a, is an acronym for three particular words, uh, Hebrew words. It basically means the, uh, the, the law, which is the first five books of Moses, the writings, which is like uh, Song of Solomon, Proverbs, Psalms, and then what's typically called the Prophets, which would be like Isaiah and uh, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the other minor prophets and all. Those three particular books, Law, the Writing, and the Prophets. Ancient Jews, first century, when they would teach the Bible, kind of like ancient uh, rabbis, they were like uh, modern-day pastors. They would sit down, they would open up the scrolls, and they would begin to read. Typically, they would take three, uh, or take three verses, uh, three passages referring to each portion of the Torah or the Tanakh. The law, the writing, and the prophets. God bless you. And they would bring them together, and they would begin to make their point. That was a really cute sneeze. And uh, and, and they would bring them all together. All right, back on track. And they would bring them all together. And uh, so Mark is, some scholars believe that Mark is actually adopting that same type of method from the first century. And he's drawing from each section of the Tanakh. The law, the writing, and the prophets. So we already saw the prophets referred to by the uh, Isaiah uh, passage. We already saw the other passage referred to from the uh, from the writings, which is the psalm passage, um, so, which would leave potential another opportunity to come from the Torah, the first five books. So Mark, actually, as he writes about this, he says one other final thing, that the father has this great delight in his son because when he identifies, when Jesus went into the water being baptized, came out of the water, Holy Spirit fell upon him, this voice comes from heaven, and the voice says, this is my beloved son. So where in the Old Testament, particularly maybe in a, the Torah, the first five books, does, or is there a reference of somebody, a father, showing, demonstrating his love to a son? Well, interestingly enough, in the book of Genesis chapter 22, is a passage that most of us are probably familiar with where God tells Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your beloved son. Some other translations might say, your, your only son. And so the reality is, a lot of scholars think that there's no distinction between your only son and beloved son. Because the bottom line is this, is if you were living in an ancient culture that valued sons, and you only had one of them, would you love him? You would love him. You would love your boy. And so the idea of your beloved son and your only son are synonymous terms. And so a lot of scholars would see that what Mark is doing is he's basically building a Bible study passage to point to this Fact of this historical fact that Jesus is being baptized and he's telling us what we're seeing at work in front of our very eyes is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit rooted in the Bible itself at work in redemption. The fourth reference is really important. There's a lot of discussion as to whether or not this is the case, but I I actually think it is. And it's a reference to the Holy Spirit being like a dove. Have you ever wondered? Why the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus like a dove? It's kind of an interesting uh, metaphor. Why, for some reason, why not like an eagle, right? Big, powerful, bold, strong, mighty eagle. Do you know, just a bit of historical fact, at one point, they wanted the national bird of America to not be an eagle, but to be a turkey. Wouldn't that have been horrible, right? Turkey, Someone just is that not true? It is a turkey. Yeah, that's right, I thought. Yeah, a turkey, like a turkey, Benjamin Franklin wanted it. Yeah, exactly. So, and then they're like, you know what? Turkeys are lame. Let's go with an eagle. So they went with an eagle. So the point of the matter is, is that when the Holy Spirit falls upon Jesus, he falls upon Jesus not as a turkey, not as an eagle, but as a dove. Why a dove? It's very important. Some scholars actually believe um, one of the reasons why is that the, the uh, like I said, the, the writings in the Hebrew circulation back in the first century they would not only have the Torah, the, the Bible, but they would also have all these commentaries that went along with the Bible. And some of these commentaries were called targums. And these targums are commentaries uh, within these storylines um, also gave sort of reference or demonstration to certain or translations and interpretations to other words. And in these targums, there was a particular reference to the Holy Spirit during the day of creation. Remember when it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that in the beginning God created all things, and then the Holy Spirit brooded or hovered over the face of the deep. Well, the type of word that was used to translate the Holy Spirit brooding over the face of the deep was translated in one of these targums at least to to reference this concept of something very gentle, not like a harsh, uh, aggressive type of a bird, but like a very soft-spoken, gentle, brooding type work of like that of a dove. And that in the Targums, that it's possible that when they read this, and they saw that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus like a dove, it immediately would have drawn their minds back to original creation. Here's what I think Mark's doing. I think Mark is actually painting a picture for us, saying in, as just as in the original creation, you had three agents at work in the original creation. Remember what they were? God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and the Word how did God create? Spoke. God's Word. God's Word, the Holy Spirit, and God. We're all active agents in creation. Here's what I think Mark's doing. I think Mark is basically putting together a composite picture for us by declaring to us that just as the Trinitarian God was at work in original creation, so the Trinitarian God is at work in recreation or redemption, starting with Redemption. Jesus coming into this world, doing a great work, beginning right there at the baptism. That what you see here that I think Mark's trying to bring our minds to and help us to come to some clarity over is that God himself, as Father, Son, and Spirit, are actually actively at work to save us. The second thing that I want you to notice, I think John or Mark is trying to convey to us, is that when God... When Jesus goes down and is baptized, comes out, here's the voice from heaven come forth from God. Here's what it says. And the voice came from heaven, here's what it declares, "You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased." That what Mark wants us to understand very clearly, that this agent through whom God is doing a new work, i.e. Jesus, he's not just the king and he's just he's not just simply part of this trinitarian makeup of the godhead at work not only in original creation but now at work in new creation but that this god who is empowering and working through the agency of his son Jesus that this god absolutely is in love with his son this this peels back for us the veil that's always been there by all people. The question is, what's God like? Is God nice? Is he caring? Is he capricious? Is he like Zeus? Is he like a God where you you don't know what he's going to be like from day to day? Is he grumpy? Is he cranky? What type of God is 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 he? Is he temperamental? Does he have good days? Does he have bad days? Are there times when, you know, he can be trusted and he's really good, and then there's other times where he's, he's deceptive and he lies and he just tries to promote himself and push himself and push everybody else aside. But what is he like? And what Mark is trying to communicate and convey to us that when the voice came from heaven, from this Trinitarian God to his son, that he declares his deep affection for his son. Let me ask you a side note of a question here. Marginal note. What did Jesus do in his life up until this point? What did he do? He's around 30 years old at this time. What Do we know, to some degree, if any, that Jesus has done in his life up to this point? Any miracles? Has he healed anybody yet? Opened any eyes? Preached a sermon? None of that that we're aware of. We don't know anything about that. There's nothing that's referred to that that's what Jesus did prior to this point. So what did Jesus do? He probably worked for his father in the carpenter's house. That's it. But what's amazing to me is that regardless of whatever Jesus did or didn't do, the Father actually declares his deep affection over the Son, independent of what he does. This is really important. Because what it tells us about the nature of God is that God absolutely loves his Son, not for what he does, not for how he behaves, not for what he's like, but for just simply who he is. You see, you and I, we live in a culture that a lot of us, We've been conditioned, we've been trained, we think that people like us, people will only like us depending upon what we do for them, how we act, how good we are, how well we communicate, how well we get along. Some of you, that's the way that you were brought up. That's the way your dad trained you. Your dad was the type of guy that basically showed you affection. As long as you mowed the lawn, as long as you had good grades, as long as you were nice to your sister, as long as you were kind to your mom, as long as you did everything that you were asked of, then maybe your dad would be nice to you. But again, then again, he might not. He was capricious. You never know when he's going to show you kind affection. You never know when he's going to give you any type of liking or show you love or demonstrate any type of kindness to you. You just don't know. Because the type of love that you were conditioned to understand to receive from your dad was not dependent upon who you are but dependent upon what you do some of you that's the way that you think God is like you've come to think God will like me God will love me as long as I read my Bible as long as I journal as long as I get a Christian mug that has a verse on it as long as I give to my church as long as I go on a mission trip as long as I do something nice God will then love me you know what that is That, by definition, is corrupted religion. That's defiled religion. It's one of the reasons why I hate religion. Because what religion does is it causes you to think that the way that you will be accepted by God is if you do good things for him. If you read from the right translation of the Bible, if you go to the right church, if you hold to the right theological concepts, if you believe in the right terminology of certain things, if you do all sorts of other things, then God just may, if he's feeling up to it, accept you. It's the way you've come to believe God is. But what I find amazing is that that's not how God is with Jesus. He just loves Jesus for who he is. And he declares to us very clearly that this God, by his very nature, is love. W- why does this matter? Because really, at the end of the day, this matters above and beyond everything. What this is doing for us, what it reveals to us, is that this God, in the very nature of who he is, in the very nature of his being, that the very fundamental element of who this God is, is that he's love. That's who he is. That's what Jesus declares him to be, he's love. that yes he creates things but he creates things not because he needs to be loved but because he is love see this is why it's important to see god as trinitarian because if god is if god is the modalistic type deity meaning he's just one god and he just comes up in various forms periodically you can't just simply love yourself as an individual that love, ha- love can only exist amongst at least two people. There has to be a community for there to be love actually active, actively working. You can't just have one person have a loving relationship. It doesn't work. And it doesn't work virtually either, online. All right, You have to have two people working together in some sort of community, loving one another, serving one another, caring for one another. So if God is just simply one with no revelation of a Trinitarian nature, then his very essence is not necessarily love. It's doing. It's duty. It's getting things right. The second thing is that if God is a plurality of gods, if there are multiple deities, tritheistic, pantheist, many gods, if these gods all were the ones that were in charge of everything, they're never going to get along. There won't be peace oftentimes what will happen is there'll be tribalism that will result coming out of that. But the point of the matter is is that this God, if he's Trinitarian and he loves each other in the Trinity, that God the Father loves the Son and what God the Father is actually doing to Jesus in the moment of the baptism is just simply revealing to everybody around what he's always done throughout all eternity is show his kind affection then we can have hope of the fact that the very nature of this God is love. And he will continue to love. So if this God, let me try to put it like this. All right, so what does this all matter? Take a look at the next slide. I create a little, um, I don't know what you call it. What do you call this? A chart for you, whatever, whatever. I know you guys like charts. You guys are into this stuff. So I created this for you. You're welcome. Um, The reality is this, is that if you have a God who's Trinitarian in nature and he created all things, Trinitarian, but if this Trinitarian God also is the active agency working to redeem that which is broken in this whole thing, and then thirdly, if this God actually who created all things and is actively working to redeem this whole thing actually does it all motivated by none other than love, you know what that means for us? means we have hope. It means that there actually is a hope of being restored. There is a hope of being redeemed. There is a hope of being swept up by this God and being brought into his redemptive processes whereby we can be changed, whereby we can be renewed, whereby we can be transformed. And that, by definition, is very good news. This is why Mark starts out, he says, in the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, that Jesus came, and that this Jesus who came is part of a Trinitarian working God who created all things, who loves and is actively working to redeem us. And He loves his son, and he's seeking to bring others into that which has been lost to them. Because the reality, and what this speaks to us very clearly, is that all of us, just like it says, we have broken relationship with this God. We have done what the Bible describes as sin. We have turned against God. We have set ourselves as enemies against this God. Rather than being swept up in love and relationship with this God, we've pulled away from this God. We've justified it. we figured out ways to try to somehow get ourselves away from it, get away from God. And as a result, we have died. To pull away from this true God who is life and life-giving in his essence is to literally walk into a field of death. If you're trying to figure out a word to describe your existence apart from God, it's the best word. It's death. Death in relationships. You're like, why are my relationships always dying? Because there's death at work. Why am I getting sick? Because there's death at work. Why, why, I mean, why do, here's a really practical one, why do I have to take showers all the time and put perfume on? Because that is a very tangible way to prove Death is at work, even in your physical body. Unless you take a shower, you'll get funk. And it's a proof that there's death always at work. Always at work. You're like, it smells like death. I know, it proves my point. It's because at the end of the day, behind it all is an attitude that says, we don't want God, we don't need God, we can live without God. And God's response is, you will die. Death is at work, you'll die. But God's answer is that I'm a loving God who created all things. And I'm a loving God who's in work redeeming all things. And I'm a loving God that's seeking to come to those that are rebels and restore and redeem them. This is the message that Mark's trying to convey and communicate and portray to us about this incredibly loving God. The third thing that we see about this is that not only do we... Realize that this whole work of redemption is the result or the work of a Trinitarian God. The second thing that we see is that this God actually loves and delights in his own son. The third thing that we see is that all who are in the son are actually loved in the same way by this God. This is absolutely amazing. This is the, this is the incredible hope of all of this. Listen to how Jesus would go on to say this a little bit later. Because really at the end of the day, this is the most important thing about it. That Jesus is actually describing to us what God was at work doing in this world. He says this in one one of the most famous points where Jesus prays. It's in John chapter 17. Listen to what Jesus says. This is eternal life that they might know you, the only true God. So in short, what's eternal life? Jesus says eternal life is actually having a relationship with God. That's it. And his son Jesus. That's what eternal life is. See, some of you might have been told that eternal life is joining a church. That's not eternal life, man. I mean, like I don't, I don't know if you've, if, I mean, if you've been a part of a church any period of time, any length of time, you know that it's actually full of a bunch of hypocritical people that offend people, that say weird things. Some Christians can be pretty weird people sometimes. I'm, you know what I'm saying? I mean, the bottom line is, I'm not going to deny that. Some are like, Christians are hypocrites. I know. I'm one of them. I'm, I'm in that club, all right? We're all part of that whole deal. And so, I mean, if Christianity is just about you joining a church, being a part of a club, and acting holy and nice, and doing good godly things, and giving money away, and you know, saying certain things that sound a little bit spiritual, then I'll tell you what, it's miserable. That's not life. That's eternal death. That's the other place. But if in reality, what Jesus is saying is that eternal life is knowing the God who created you, knowing the God who is actually in the world through Jesus, redeeming you, being in relationship with this God, that's life. I'll tell you what, Christianity is vibrant. It's life-giving. It changes us. The second thing that we see with regard to that in John chapter 17, he goes on and says this. He says, you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You hear what Jesus says? He's praying. He says, God, you sent me And yet you love them in the same way that you loved me. I want you to feel this. Do you know that? That Jesus, his whole words can change your life right now. Radically change you forever if you believed it. Problem is you don't believe it. We don't believe it. We really don't believe this. That's our problem. We disbelieve it. We hear it. And it doesn't change us. Jesus is literally saying, Father, you love them with as much ferocious affection as you love me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God loves you with as much passionate, powerful, life-giving love as he loves his own son? That's what Jesus is saying. I know we wrestle with that. We struggle with that because we look at ourselves. That's the problem. We immediately hear it and we go back to ourselves. We look at ourselves in the mirror and we think, he can't love this. The reality is, is he does. He can't possibly accept this, but that's the miracle of it all. He does. It's by grace. You say, I don't deserve it. That's my point. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what Jesus is conveying here. And listen to what he goes on to say. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see the, my glory that you had with, given with me. Uh, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here's what Jesus is saying, is that Father, you and I, we experienced love throughout all eternity past, even before we created this whole system, even before we even set in order this universe. We were in love. We enjoyed each other. You know what Jesus is saying? Father, help them to see, help them be brought in, help them to know this incredible love that, you and I have enjoyed throughout all eternity past. I don't even know how to begin to unpack that. Then just maybe give a silly analogy that might make a little sense. I've been married for over 20 years. And one of the things my wife and I will do sometimes weekly, a couple times throughout the week, we'll just kind of hang out in the kitchen. We're talking. We just we just hug each other. I like could just sit there, like hug my wife, and she's hugging me, and I'm just got my arm around her, and we're just sitting there in the kitchen. We're not like doing anything. We're just talking, chatting, just kind of holding each other. Sometimes a little rock and. Sway back and forth, a little bit of a dance, you know. We'll just hang there, just do that. It's nothing big, you know, nothing, nothing weird. And then my youngest daughter, Brooke, typically is the first one. She'll come in, she'll be like, oh, I want in. She'll be like, wiggle her way in, and we're like, okay. We open up, and we welcome her in. She's like there, and we're just kind of all swaying together, we're like loving each other and hanging out. And my, my, my other daughter, Brianna, she's my oldest. She's 15, she's a teenager, uh, sophomore, at slow high. She comes in, she's like, I want in too. So she comes in, and we're like, okay, come on, let's widen the circle. That's what salvation is. God the Father, Son, and the Spirit in love, circling each other, loving one another, doting upon each other, affectionately in love with one another throughout all eternity, secure amongst themselves, coming to us sinners and saying, we want to widen the circle to bring you in. Do you believe that? That's what salvation is. It's God widening the circle. God's saying, I want to bring them in. They're undeserving. They were once strangers and foreigners and wicked, evil people that have sought to break ranks with us and have sought to circle themselves and have sought to be an end in and of themselves and have sinned against us. They were enemies. There was mutiny going on. And yet, God says, we created them and we love them as our creation. And yet, because we are loving agents We've entered into the world to redeem them, to bring these least deserving sinners into the circle by grace. That's salvation. That's what Christianity is. That's why it's good news. C.S. Lewis would put it this way. He actually describes Christianity like a dance. In his little treaty... I think it's in mere Christianity on the Trinity. Listen to what he says. In Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life. Almost a kind of drama, almost, if you don't think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The whole dance is a three-person life. In this of this three-person life is to be played out in each one of us. Or putting it another way around, each one of us has got to enter into that pattern, take his place in that dance. And if indeed the Trinity, the triune nature of God, is this God revealed in three people, loving, serving, affectionately caring for one another, It's true, if it is a dance, it's not just static. It's not just standing there, tapping its foot, making demands, saying, no, 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 no. You circle around me. The Trinity is saying, we will circle around each other. And what we do, and what we've done in this life through our sin is we've stopped. We've become static. We bought the lie. We took the bait that Satan took at us and says, no, 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 here's the way to life. Here's the way to have existence. You stop the dance, and you demand to be circled. We bought the lie. Only problem is it didn't lead to life. It led to death. We thought it was going to lead to some sort, of chaos or some sort of order. It just led to chaos. We thought somehow it was going to bring about some semblance within our universe. But instead, our universe collapsed and disintegrated and broke and will continue to break. Because the problem at the end of the day is we're sitting tapping our foot saying, we want somebody to circle around us. But the beauty of the message of the gospel is that our God, who is in himself, love, comes into this world by grace, says, you know what I will do is I will lay my life down for you. I will take upon myself what you deserve, death, and I will die in order to give you what you don't deserve, life. Do you believe that? Because if you believe that, you know how that will change your life? changes your insecurities. From feeling as if you're desperate to get someone to care about you and love you, it changes you fundamentally because now you realize someone does love me. Someone does care about me. And his love and affection for me are greater than what anybody else can give to me. It's incomparable. It doesn't compete. It doesn't compare to anything else. It's one of the problems that some of us live, the way that we live. We desperately want the affection, the attention, the affirmation from other people, and we don't get it. Right? Some of you, you watched the office this week. Anybody? Right? Remember? Andy? Those of you watched it, those of you don't, and you're gonna curious. Like, he is desperate to get the affection of his dad. He doesn't get it and he ends disappointed. That's just like us. We desperately want the attention and the affection of somebody else beyond us, and we don't get it. But those who understand this passage and the trajectory of which where Mark is going, of what Jesus is seeking to accomplish, and you realize that in Jesus. God loves you with the same affection that he loves his son. You know what? Then that means that you don't need to go fighting trying to desperately pimp yourself out to get someone to love you. You don't. Because someone does love you. You know what that means? Because you're confident and comfortable in that love, you now have love to give away. That means that you can go to people that are broken and hurting and destroyed and despondent, marginalized, and you can love on them. You know what else Jesus says? That those that are secure in the Father's love, it's so profound, so amazing, it's so like God, because you know what? It's so life-changing that it actually allows you to love, guess who else? Your enemies. Because guess who else loved his enemies? God. God. This is what the gospel does to you, it changes you. You can't be the same person. It takes people that were stingy, feeling like I've gotta hold on to everything I got. If I let go of it, if I let go of my money, if I let go of my talents, if I let go of my goods, if I give them away to anybody else, and somehow I won't have anything else to take care of me, to take care of myself. Who's gonna dance around me? Who's gonna circle me? Who's gonna come over me? Who's gonna take care of me? when we understand what the gospel is and we realize that God's given us everything, everything comes from the source of life, the life giver, and he's extremely generous. When you find that comfort in that, guess what? You're free to be generous. money you have, you give it away. Your talents you have, they're not yours anyhow. They're yours to be given away, to serve other people, to help other people, business sense that you have, you can actually sit down with competitors, even in your own field, and say, you know what? Let's brainstorm and figure out how I can help you be a better businessman. You're like, uh, if I get good, then won't we be competition with each other? and I might put you out of business. It doesn't matter. God will take care of me. He's a good God. He loves me, and I have given everything I have, and I'm going to freely give it all away. It's all good. Got nothing, nothing to lose. This is what God's love does. It changes you, fundamentally. I wanna finish, I'm gonna wrap this up and I want you to just consider the great love of God that he has and he's put on display for you. The story of the Bible fundamentally is that this God came, Trinitary, Trinity, Trinitarian God came, redeemed all things, came to restore, uh, recreate all things, make things new and came to extend the circle of his love and his dance to those that don't deserve it. It's you and I. I want you to see and hear the invitation of this God to join that. I'm gonna pray, we're gonna respond, we'll partake of communion, we'll sing. Some of you here, you might need to confess sin to God. Some of you, that's what you need to do to enter into that dance, to enter that relationship. You've gotta confess sin because you have been expecting God and everybody else to circle around you and it's left you broken when what you need to do is repent before that God and receive this invitation that he calls to welcome you in through his son by the sacrifice that he made for you on the cross. That's why it's good news. God, we just thank you for the cross. We realize that on the cross we see God's love, your love, put on highest display and that changes us Lord, to just merely see you as a creator, doesn't change us. Just merely see you as someone buying things back, buying up property, doesn't change us. But to see you as creator and as one who buys things back for the purpose of lovingly restoring it, even though we least deserve it, even though we were enemies of God by our sin and our rebellion and our disbelief, that you Actually, died for sinners. God. God, that thaws our hearts out. It it changes our cynicism into praise. It, it frees us. It allows us to uh, relinquish debt. That we've had in our heart for other people and it breathes life into our death and it shines light into our darkness so we invite you god now to just move as we sing as we worship as we just submit our hearts to you